So we are reading through the Bible in a program called Mission 119, and we will be finished in November, reading through the Bible. It took about two years. That's a pretty good process. So this week we are actually going to be doing the reading from, from next week. So we're finishing out Ezekiel and starting in Philippians. And so uh, this week we'll be in Philippians 4. But it's been a great time of just drawing near to the Lord and hearing uh, from Him through His Word. And even though we are late in the process, I encourage you to jump in and read. Even read the book of Philippians. Uh, it's a very short book and a great introduction to really the theology of Jesus Christ, what Jesus taught. And Paul reteaches it in, in his own way. And it's an ex- excellent book. So I believe that starts on Tuesday. So if you look at the front of your bulletin, the readings are listed. You can join in with us and just study the book of Philippians. You'll actually go back over the scripture that we're going to be talking about today in, in service. So that's going to be really fun. One thing we have to recognize when we come to the Bible is that it is an ancient book. And actually, it's a collection of ancient books over a long period of time where God inspired many authors to write as the Spirit uh, led them. And then this was later compiled into this book we know as the Bible, Old and New Testaments. Uh, There's different kinds of literature in the Bible. There's prophecy. There's uh, the Gospels, which are the stories about Jesus, which I highly recommend if you've never read any part of the Bible to start in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John in the New Testament and just see what Jesus said, see what this Christianity thing is all about. Uh, But there's all kinds of different literature. Um, and, And one of the things about the Bible that's so amazing is that though it has all this different kind of media and different, different authors, different time periods that people lived in, the Spirit of God brought about a remarkable consistency in what he chose to share with us and what we have preserved in the Bible. And after doing a lot of reading, I'm pretty convinced that this is what God wanted us to have. It's an amazing, amazing thing. And there's amazing consistency, an amazing way to come to know God. Uh, so, but because it is an ancient book, because it's from a different culture, in a different time than we live in, there is this act of interpretation that we need to do when we read the Bible. Uh, we always need to determine what the Bible meant to its original hearers, what, they, what it meant to them. A lot of that is stuff we learned in Mission 119. And then uh, we have to translate what it meant to them in their context into what does it mean to us in our context, in the day in which we live. And in doing that, we kind of apply the Bible to ourse- our, our lives. And we let God's Word speak to us afresh and share the, the, the ancient wisdom breathed into our lives in the here and now. And everyone here could tell you that there are times when the Bible is confusing, when you don't understand it. But as the Spirit of God breathes on that text, as you think about, maybe get a study Bible and think about its original intended audience or what the message was, the Spirit of God brings it and clicks it into our lives and we can grow and hear from God. It's an amazing, amazing process. And none of that would be possible without the Holy Spirit who is guiding us and leading us as we read. Um, there are some things in the Bible uh, where it's very easy to apply because it, it just makes complete sense. It's a universal problem that everyone has in every generation. And there are sometimes when, when we get a little bit lost in what is going on. Today is one of those days when we can relate pretty much exactly to what the Bible is talking about because it's stuff that we face in our day directly. Um, and, and the message today is that in these things, God wants to help us. Uh, The Holy Spirit wants to help us in our lives. He wants to help us to live life to the full. And um, it's really interesting, though. Sometimes the the Scripture is so plain and the meaning is so plain, but we still don't really want to, like, do what it says. It's our human nature where we're kind of battling against God. I mean, I I think it's safe to share stories about my children, as long as it's not too often, right? And, uh, And as long as they're not here to defend themselves. But 
and then they're up there in kids' church. But my son Elias, you know, I'll say, I just, just yesterday I said to him, Elias, you need to get dressed. This sound familiar to anybody? You need to get dressed. And he goes, I don't know where my clothes are. <laughs> and then I'm like, okay, well, your clothes are in your room set out for you. Your mom basically set them out like so the sh- you couldn't mistake where the shoes go, the shoes, pants, and just laid out. Just lay on the floor and put this stuff on. He goes, oh, but I don't know where in my room it is. So you walk him over to it in his room, and then you, like, hold him over the clothes. Look down, look down. There it is. I don't know how to put my clothes on. The problem isn't that it's not clear what the process is. The problem is he doesn't want to put his clothes on. And this is often the problem with the Bible. We'd really like it to be some parts of it we'd prefer not to listen to because we don't want to change our lives in line with God. We're like, oh, that's ancient. That's ancient wisdom. You know, we can't really apply this to our lives today. But really, it's, it's pretty plain. You just don't want to apply it. So we have two things working against us. Sometimes we have to translate, but sometimes we just don't want to do it. Let's be honest. And that's just how it is. And I, as much as I could get upset with my kids, I see myself in them all the time. They're a looking glass for my own life. So sometimes we know exactly what to do. We just don't want, want to do it. But the Holy Spirit wants to help us he wants us to, to help us to put into practice the things of the Bible and to flex those muscles of faith in our lives and get into these habits, these disciplines. And over time, we grow strong in Christ as we apply the Word of God, as we understand that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we grow these muscles of faith that carry us in our lives. And that's what God's all about doing. But we're not left to our own devices. We have a helper and this is, I, I'm harping on this because it's the thing, that, the most recent thing the Holy Spirit has said to me personally. I'm here to help you. I want to help you. That's such a comforting thing to hear God say, I want to help you. Because of all the different distortions I have of who God is and my misunderstandings and my upbringing and, you know, all these things that kind of confuse you about who God is. But the Spirit of God said to me so clearly, I want to help you. Not hurt you. I want to help you. God is all about being in our quarter and helping us, especially when we are, you know, willing if God has a willing heart, you open a door to him, he does amazing things. But if you're just standing over your clothes carefully laid out for you, saying, I don't know how to put these on, even God's not going to impinge upon your will at that point. Until you're ready to, to turn to him, it's not gonna, he's not going to force you. But this is a great thing. We can flex these muscles of faith. We can grow. But today we are in this passage where Paul gives three things, uh, th- three kind of topics and give solid wisdom on these things. They're things that we can just directly understand. So we're going to read this whole passage together, then we're going to uh, talk about these three things uh, separately. I'll look more spiritual if I read from the Bible, right? (laughs) Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. That's what I say to Jackie every day when I wake up, you know. I love and long for my joy and crown. Honey, this is a very affectionate opening, right? Paul loves this church. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Sintiq to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, 
But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. So Paul talks about three things in this passage. The first one is how to deal with interpersonal conflict. We have two people at war in this passage who he is trying to encourage to work their problems out. The second is dealing with anxiety. These ringing a bell for you in your life? Anyone have interpersonal conflicts? Does anyone have anxiety? You people that don't want to admit to it are the ones that give me anxiety. Like, <laughs> I don't trust people that don't have some anxiety. because Everyone has anxiety, right? Dealing with interpersonal conflict, dealing with anxiety, and dealing with our thoughts. What do our thoughts mean and what can we do with them? These are the three topics that Paul is going after in this passage. And Paul is going to tell us why these things matter and give us some advice on how to remain faithful to God in the midst of being a very fallen and broken human being, as you and I both are. And these are very common struggles. So in a way, this is a, this is a chance to exercise your faith muscles every minute of every day, from the time you wake up to the time you go to bed. Interpersonal conflicts, anxiety, and your thoughts, you can't escape these things. They're right with you. And Paul's advice is not to try harder, to do better, to be a better person. Paul knows that our strength can't cut it. He does. And he offers us a better way. And uh, the Holy Spirit offers us a better way. So first we're going to look at dealing, how Paul talks about dealing with interpersonal conflict. And this is disagreement uh, between people. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Sintiq to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they are, have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. So the people that Paul is writing to today are just deeply flawed people just like us with their own sets of interpersonal problems. And our passage begins today with Paul telling the people to stand firm in the Lord after telling them how much he loves them. And he goes right into a situation in which many people decide that standing firm in the Lord isn't that easy and they don't want to do it. That's interpersonal conflict. You know, we want to have angels and demons. This, this person's the devil and I'm the angel, right? Or vice versa. Um, and Paul says, in this situation, when you're so tempted to take a side and to just fight to the mat, take it to the mat, this is a time to stand firm in your faith. The, one of the most difficult times. Flex your muscles of faith. Um, this particular conflict was between two women who were probably a couple of the founders of the Philippian church. If you remember in Acts 16, and if you remember this, I'm impressed, but we went through Acts. Paul went to Philippi, and there were no synagogues, no churches for him to preach at. It's a very Roman place. It just wasn't a Jewish worship place. And so Paul found a small group of women who were worshiping God by the river. And, and God opened the heart of a very influential and wealthy leader among the people named Lydia, and she and her entire household came to faith in God. 
And it was through this group of women under the leadership of Lydia that one of Paul's most beloved churches was birthed. You know, it was this amazing kind of thing that God did. So Paul is now writing to this very influential, very beloved church uh, founded by, by these ladies and addressing it to two women who had fallen into an interpersonal conflict. And we're assuming these women were very influential because everyone knew what he was talking about when they received the letter. Euodia and Cynthia, they have a problem. They're leaders in the church. We don't know what their disagreement or conflict is, but we really don't need to know what that conflict was in order to draw out some, uh, some insight. We know that they were in an anxious battle with one another, and they had lost sight of what they strongly agreed on in their faith, which is the Lord. So first, as a preface to all that Paul says next, Paul reminds the church that they are his sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, who he loves. He reminds them of his affection for them and who he longs to be with, who are his joy and crown, who are his friends. Now, this is not the appeal of some kind of CEO sending a memo, like, you better get your stuff in shape. These are your friends. These are my, these are my family. His heart is just breaking in this... Um, in this memo, this letter. And one thing that Paul doesn't do is take sides right away. And Paul is not someone who won't say, say what he thinks. He's not the kind of person that shies away from conflict when you read in the Bible about him. When it comes to sin and real, real serious problems in the church, he addresses those things head on. But this is some kind of matter that's just a dispute that is not even worth taking sides on, and so he doesn't. He doesn't take sides on it. And Paul reminds the church that they are family in the Lord, which is a crazy thing to the people who originally heard it. This church of women, presumably men, rich and poor, ethnically diverse, you know, all of the different ways in which Jesus took down those barriers that come between people, this, is a, this church is a family. Jews and Gentiles, Greeks, slave men and free men, it's, it's, it's a family. And he's saying, you are a family in the Lord. A crazy thing. We take that for granted today. The church is a family, and in our culture, you know, values as it should um, the diversity of the body of Christ, you know, and it being a diverse, rich, poor, young, old, all those things. But at this time, people were just divided along these ethnic lines, among a stat, social status lines. And Paul is saying, you're a family. Don't forget. Um, you're a family in the Lord Jesus. And Paul says, um, later uh, in a different passage in Galatians, this passage I read earlier, there is neither uh, Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for we are all one in Christ. So before even talking to them about trying to reason with them about resolving their conflict, Paul reminds them, you are one big family in the Lord. Don't forget I think that would have been easy to forget, especially at that time when people weren't quite used to that. We don't know what the, the essence of this, this uh, disagreement was, but it could have been based on differences, real big differences of how people were, were um, weighted and treated in a, in, a, in a very unequal society. But Paul says, you're all a family, don't forget. And then Paul basically says that what unifies them in Christ is greater than anything that could separate them. And this is a phrase that I've heard before, so I'm not taking credit for a catchy phrase. This is a good phrase. What unifies these women in Christ, 
is greater than anything that could ever separate them. Stand firm in the Lord, your companions in the gospel of Christ. In the Lord. When people are in the Lord, they automatically have a ton in common. They could have different personalities, different places in society, different gender, different political parties, um, different ethnicities. But automatically, when people come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior and their Lord, we have something huge in common. We have like a 99% commonality with, our, with those people. And there's nothing, truly, when that's focused on, that commonality in Christ is focused on, there's nothing that can really separate people unless they let themselves get carried away in sin. You know, what binds us together is stronger than anything that could separate us. They've been made one big family through Jesus Christ. And so have we. Christ, Jesus, in any interpersonal conflict, our connection through Jesus Christ and our, and our receiving forgiveness through his grace on the cross, which is just equally given to the person who thinks they need it less and the person that thinks they need it more, that just is a great equalizer. When we focus on that, it's far greater than anything that could separate us. You know, our genders cannot separate us um, in Jesus Christ. Our politics cannot separate us. Our opinions and preferences cannot separate us. Our culture cannot separate us, even though it seems to try really hard. Our preferred style of worship cannot separate us. Our opinion about paint colors cannot separate us. And that's not a problem here, I'm just saying. Um, our disparities in wealth cannot separate us. And any conflict in Christian relationships, from a marriage between a believer in Christ and another believer in Christ, to the community of faith among many believers, such as we have here at New Life, what unifies us is far greater than anything that could ever separate us. Think about the struggles that people have in their marriages. There is something greater in all the conflict that you experience. There's something greater if you're both believers that, that unifies you. Capitalize on that. Capitalize on that. Because when we do that, God brings unity and God is faithful. Um, but we have to realize that we are not so... I mean, I... I I've been to a few different cultures, different places in the world. It's amazing just to be able to click into place with other believers in Christ because we worship the same God, the same Savior, the same Lord. And styles change and, and different things change. Some of the styles I like better than, you know, anything. I like the celebratory, you know, gospel style or uh, different, different, different worship things, people blowing shofars. That's fun, you know, Mac, smacking tambourines around. That's a good time. It's it's. Those things are so superficial. What really binds us together is Jesus Christ. And, you can, and when you really realize that, you can begin to appreciate the beautiful tapestry that God has made in the church. You know, the same light. It sa says in Revelation that Jesus is the light, you know, in, in heaven. That same light of Christ shines through different colors of glass window, different personalities, different cultures, and makes a beautiful um, projection into the world. So as much as things can look very different from place to place, um, what unifies us is greater than what separates us every time through Christ. So when we get into a conflict with one person or even a conflict with an entire church body, we have to work out the salvation we have been given by surrendering our opinions, preferences, and even hateful attitudes to the Lord and focusing on worshiping Jesus together, whom we all hold in common. When people will prefer one another in faith, 
and focus on Jesus. No one's a doormat. That's why I love it in Ephesians it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's right before the passage about marriage. It's part of it. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. If you will surrender your opinions, preferences, and hate-filled feelings uh, to the Lord and, and focus on worshiping Jesus together who we hold in common, if we, fo- if we focus on our shared relationship with Christ and surrender our own desires, even if, they, even if they're good desires sometimes, to Jesus, not to the other person, and choose to pray and worship with our adversary instead, it will go a long way to becoming in the same mind as the Lord, which is what this passage talks about. Paul says, I plead with them to be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, that's what the whole goal is. Because what binds us together in Christ is greater than anything that can really separate us. It's a matter of perspective. And he goes on to, Paul goes on in this passage to encourage his fellow believers to help these women. There is a sense in which sometimes people are so far out there and it's gotten so crazy, they need some help from the body of Christ. And these women, Paul points out, have worked shoulder to shoulder with him in planning the church and working with the Bishop of Alexandria, a Clement, to make the church what it is. And Paul admonishes the church, don't take sides, but help. Help them remember what unifies them. So Paul pleads with them in this passage. And I would really plead with you as the body of Christ, in your relationships with others, in your Christian relationships, you know, recognize that what combines, what unifies you with Christ is greater than anything that can separate you in your marriages, in your small groups, in the church fellowship. If we focus on praying and surrendering to Jesus all the extra stuff that's superficial and worshiping God together, uh, we will see some great ground taken for the Lord. So choosing the way of surrendering, joining in prayer, and asking God to help us, asking God's Spirit to help us. Um, That's the key to Resolving conflicts. And perhaps part of the key to resolving conflicts was the loving way in which Paul put this in his letter for them. So imagine if you got a letter, a letter to our church from like the bishop, and he says, you know, I heard about, you know, Bonnie and Ed, so make sure you help those guys. There'd be like a sense, oh, you know, spiritual authority is saying this, this is a problem. We should really think about this. And there are no problems with Bonnie and Ed. But there's a loving, there's a loving way in which that I know of is a loving way in which God is pushing to say, look, resolve this stuff. It's very important. Uh, when, the, when the unity goes, we lose a lot. We lose a lot more than we think. And unity goes for very stupid reasons. That's a, not a word I'm supposed to say in front of my kids. They're in child care. So. What, what binds us together is greater than anything that can separate us. We can get through anything as a body. I know that. I know that. So the next very practical matter Paul attends to is this issue of anxiety, which is something we are all familiar with. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. 
I wish I could tell you that the word for anxiety that Paul uses translates into something completely different than what we talk about today, and that this didn't apply to your life at all. I don't really wish that because this is good stuff. Not much mystery here as to how to apply this teaching. We all face the possibility of anxiety um, from the moment we get up in the morning to the moment we go to sleep, day in and day out. It is a daily muscle that we exercise or don't exercise in our lives. And anxiety here in our passage means exactly what we think it means. It means being self-focused in counterproductive worry. So focusing intently upon oneself, having a very circular, self-oriented worry. And people have anxiety for all kinds of reasons. Some people have anxiety that is chemically induced by imbalances in their family, and they have to, like, figure out some medical things to help them with that. But, and that's, that's a good thing. That's a fine thing. But some people just have anxiety about everyday life, about our finances, about family relationships, about our children, about our jobs, our careers, and about health. Health is a big one. And truly, one person, a person could have anxiety about anything. Anxiety is different from legitimate cares we might have. For instance, Paul says in a previous passage in Philippians 2.28 that he had anxiety for the Philippian church because his companion Epaphroditus, who the Philippian church had sent to visit Paul, had gotten very sick and almost died, and the church was worried that he, had, he was very sick and would die. And Paul had anxiety and care for them that they were worried about Epaphroditus. It wasn't self-focused. It wasn't counterproductive. He actually cared about their hearts and cared about their worry for, his, for their friend. And so it says, in our translation, it's a different Greek word, but it was translated in English as anxiety. And uh, what this, this means is, be, is we wish that other people would be free of pain and grief. It's like an empathic desire for other people to be free from pain and grief. And Paul had pain that they were worried about his friend, and he was excited to send Epaphroditus back so they could see that he was okay. So that's a legitimate kind of anxiety and worry to have, concern for other people. But when it turns very inward, and it becomes um, self-focused and counterproductive uh, in everyday life, uh, it becomes a serious problem. And that's what this passage is telling us to look at and remedy. I just read a couple books that happened to have the latest scientific data on anxiety. And truthfully, from, from what I've read in the most recent literature, so let's, let's take health concerns. Your anxiety over, over a health issue is more likely to cause the health issue than anything else. That's a crazy thing. Um, that the anxiety actually has a rootedness in our body, and it can cause the very thing that we fear. We call that a self-fulfilling prophecy. But literally, people can become sick from anxiety. Being free from anxiety, according to the latest research, research I've read, is a better indicator of longevity than avoiding the things that we are consumed with worry about. So not being anxious all the time will take years from your life. It will cause you to, in your body, to do, do badly. Our anxiety is certainly a useful tool that God's given us because as any good therapist will tell you, if you follow the anxiety to the thoughts that are underneath the anxiety, uh, you can deal directly with those thoughts and you can surrender them to God. But holding anxiety and making it into a way of life and a well-worn path for your life can really destroy your overall health in body, mind, and spirit. 
So Paul has some advice for those who are struggling with this kind of daily anxiety that we're talking about. And again, I recognize some people do need to seek medical help, and that's a good, good and fine thing. But Paul says, if you are open to God helping you with your anxiety, here's the message. Um, in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So first, he says to rejoice. And in case you missed it, he says it again. Rejoice. The Lord is your loving Father. That's a fundamental reality of our lives that we have a hard time accepting, but is nonetheless true. The good news from the Bible is that God created us, and God is our perfect parent, our perfect father, who loves us and wants to help us, as he said to me, and that he is near to us. Jesus spent an entire chapter uh, of Scripture, or a large part of it, in Matthew 6, 25 to 34, talking about anxiety and working to convince people to focus their concern on following God and trusting God to take care of everything else. I'm actually going to read that. I didn't plan on it, but it's such a great passage. And this is Jesus addressing this idea of our worries that we can have and telling us about our Father. Therefore, I tell you, and this is the words of God to us through Jesus, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? I don't know. Do you think you're more valuable than them? That's a good question. We could just read past that and just keep going, but ask yourself the question, are you valuable to God? Is he a loving Father who takes care of your needs? Jesus says, can any of you, by worrying, add, add a single hour to your life? Very insightful. The latest research Jesus had on worrying and anxiety. Seems to know things. Why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all of these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And that's a mic drop moment, you know? That's quite a zinger. Do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day is enough trouble of its own. Jesus says we're going to have trouble. But take heart. You have a Heavenly Father who loves you and wants to help you. That's the message of the Bible. That's what God's putting on my heart deeply as I walk with him. God loves us and he wants to help us. Paul says, um, go back to our passage here. Paul says to rejoice. He says, I'll say it again, rejoice. And he says something interesting. He says, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. 
it's an interesting thing to think about this idea of gentleness, this posture of just being in a gentle place in your life. It's not hurried. It's not frantic. You can be in the middle of a very scary situation and have a gentle kind of spirit on you because you believe that God is near and that he loves you. You know? Any situation. You can, you can be in that space, that headspace. Because God isn't like up above, somehow far away. God is here. And, you know, ancient people believed that God sat on a solid dome firmament up there, somewhere above the stars and through lightning bolts and stuff. That's what people used to think. But God is here. God is imminent. He's pressing down on us. His presence is with us. And it's a loving presence. So even in these anxious and fearful situations, we can have a gentle spirit. And that can be evident to others. And an evidence that God is near with us. And he gives this uh, amazing bit of advice. He says, instead of being anxious, do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And then something supernatural happens. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There's a lot of surrendering that I think needs to happen in our lives before we can get to that place. But I think the natural state of a believer who can really decide to and release their anxieties to God in prayer with thanksgiving is going to be the peace of God on them. You know, that's the natural state of a believer who decides to take God up on his offer. I think that that's a really hard thing, though, because, you know, anxiety is a little bit about control. It's about trying to figure out how to change the situation in your own head and not trusting that God is loving enough to care about that situation. There's always things we need to do, of course. But there is this fundamental undergirding trust that Jesus and Paul are encouraging us to have in a Heavenly Father, a vision of a Heavenly Father who loves us, who cares for us, and wants to hold our anxiety and wants to give us peace. So this is a journey. This is a Just like with the interpersonal conflict, no one wants to put into practice these principles when they're in the heat of the moment. Likewise with anxiety, if you don't hold on to these teachings and these truths in the midst of your deepest, most anxious moment, you're never going to flex that muscle. You're never going to grow. You're never going to experience what God has for you and the peace that he might have for you. We can be gentle, though, because the Lord is near. In our spirit, giving our anxieties to God in prayer, letting him hold them. The final practical matter that Paul talks about is dealing with our thoughts. In uh, in verses 8 and 9, he says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And again, the God of peace will be with you. So the principle here is, is again, a, a, re, a retelling of a principle that Jesus gave to us in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's that what you choose to dwell on or think about actually will shape you, literally, as a person in a very deep way. And when you think about it, you can see that this is true in our lives. 
in Matthew 5 to 7, the first Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus told his listeners that what they thought in their heart was of utmost importance. He said that someone who dwells on being angry with a sister or brother, it's like they've committed murder in their heart. Think of what a powerful thing anger is, you know? Dwelling on, letting it, letting it become a circular, well-worn path, it'll get you there. He says that someone who dwells on lustful thoughts towards someone they are not married to has committed adultery in their hearts. You know? You only read the headline in the paper. Lots of times people that do things that they shouldn't do, like murder, FYI, that's our teaching today, Jesus doesn't want you to murder anybody. But these actions that people actually end up doing, it's, it's a result of having let their thoughts go, to go nuts. Like, they'd never murdered someone before. They'd be in jail. <laughs> you know? Likewise with lust. People that, that as you think uh, on things, they shape you. Jesus says in Matthew six twenty two, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. If your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? So what you think about in your heart and what you look at with your eyes does shape you. And this culture t- says it doesn't, by the way. You know, the world we live in says it doesn't matter what you think, that's your business. It's, you know, what you do, we don't want you to kill anybody, but if you're mad at someone, yeah. Look at reality television. Is that okay with people? It's, it's definitely okay to be angry at people, even bitter, full of rage. Like we, This culture has no problem with, with lust as long as you don't do, do something with it. We just don't want anything bad to happen, but we don't care what goes on in your brain. But we're, we're being, we become monsters by what we dwell on and think about. That's a reality. And when the light that God's given us becomes dark because we let darkness in, then that's a really intense darkness. It's a really intense darkness. In another book I was reading, I was reading about school shootings. I was reading about domestic terrorism and other acts of societal violence. And these people uh, who I looked at had not really committed any actual crime until the time when they committed their crimes. A lot of them. What they thought about showed up on the outside. And it does for all of us in smaller ways as well. When people hold unforgiveness in their hearts towards, towards people, their heart becomes darkened in that place where unforgiveness is. Even if we never act on the impulse, it darkens us inwardly and it pollutes us in our inner being. And when we hold on to sexual lustful thoughts towards people who are not our spouse or even images of strangers, it changes the way we look at people. It, it just changes people um, and how they treat people on the outside and changes us into a different type of person. When we hold on to anger, a lot of, a lot of people have anger towards their parents and how they were raised. Um, or anyone who's wronged us. It changes us. They say that, you know, bitterness and unforgiveness is like having a cup of poison and then drinking it, you know? It's like you're only hurting yourself. And uh, it changes us who we are. So that's Paul's overall concern with this, with this uh, relationship between these two women. He understands that this disagreement that's simple will dim not only the light of their relationship, but the entire church. There's a sense in which Paul doesn't want the church to end up being filled with darkness. So he says, um, make sure that you dwell on these things instead. 
you know, it's so, it's so easy to read this passage and just, just say, you know, Paul's a goody-two-shoes Boy Scout. What does he know? It sounds very good, goody-two-shoes-like, but it's not. The opposite is dire. So he says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. And whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. Because when we think on these good things of God and follow the godly examples of others who are following God well, we will be changed in the here and now too into, into different types of people. It goes both ways. Our eyes and our minds will be full of light and our bodies will be full of light as well. And most importantly, when we live in this way, the promise is the peace of God will accompany, accompany us here as well. Just as in the passage about anxiety, there's a promise of the peace of God accompanying people who are just choosing to live in this way. It's a big deal. It forms us into the type of people that we are going to be. So in summary, you know, these are very difficult things to choose life in in the moment, but these are muscles that we have to flex if we're going to grow in Christ. In the times when we are most in the most bitter dispute with a brother or sister in Christ, in the times when we are most anxious, in the times we are most tempted to just dip into the darkness a little bit. Um, these are the times we need to stand firm, according to Paul, and believe about God the truth, which is that he is a good father who loves us, and he's here to help us, and his peace will accompany us, and his strength will accompany us as we seek to follow him. But um, This morning... If you are struggling with an interpersonal relational problem, if you are struggling with anxiety, if you are struggling with light and darkness issues, you know, this is a time to really think about what you're doing and decide, I'm not just going to look at what God's laid out for me. I'm going to do it. I'm going to put this on. And I'm going to live differently. I'm going to begin to flex these muscles and change the person that I am through the power of the Holy Spirit. And God is here to help us, not to hurt us. I pray. I'm going to pray for you right now as we go into worship. Father, I pray that you would reveal to your children here at New Life what you revealed to me, that you are a helper. You called yourself the helper. You called us to something beautiful, higher and better. To, to be people of gentleness because we believe in your goodness to the core of our being. People that focus on your kingdom and not on the things everyone else worries about. And people who love deeply from the heart and who are full of light and love. Lord, that's what you called us to. I pray that you'd make this a reality in us as we worship you, as we think through how this word from you applies to our lives. We surrender and we offer ourselves to you. In Jesus' name.